Before I begin, I, I need to make a couple of apologies. Number one, you may have saw me at, at the beginning of the service on my cell phone. I was receiving a message from Carlton during the moment, and I wouldn't respond unless it was important. But at this point, the services uh, for Sarah Gale Gibbs are planned for Tuesday morning at Mount Zion Baptist Church. Uh, they're planning on having receiving of friends at 9 o'clock, uh, and then the service at 11. Um, we will make sure that those details are finalized and get those to you later tonight. Uh, I meet with the family again late this afternoon to make sure that that, that is the plan going forward. Um, also, I had mentioned yesterday uh, that Sarah Gale was nearly three years old. I was wrong. Uh, she was nearly two years old. Uh, I apologize. You'll have to forgive an old man and his memory. Uh, sometimes I, I run my years together, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that we're getting accurate information out to you. Uh, but I'm glad that the Lord has provided us with this particular passage of Scripture this morning. It is fitting. It's appropriate for us. So let's prepare our hearts this morning and go to Him in prayer and ask Him to, to plow up the soil of our hearts to receive the truth that He imparts to us. God, we just stand in awe of You. We have to. At times, Lord, we are frustrated with the way this world is. Lord, we, we look around us, we, we see the chaos, we see the crime, we see the sin, Lord, that seems to pervade all throughout. And Lord, we're still shocked and surprised by death. We always tell ourselves, this is not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen to us. And your word tells us that it is right for us to feel that way, that this is not supposed to happen, and that it points us towards the glorious hope that is found in Jesus Christ, that when he returns, he will come and restore and make all things new, and that, Lord, we will no longer live in a world like this with the consequences of sin and death. And so, Lord, while we are enduring, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us your word, that in the midst of it, Lord, we would find hope, that we would find the ability to persevere. We pray this especially for our dear brothers and sister Carlton and Kelly, for Meredith and Brandon, for the rest of the Gibbs family. We pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them right now, that you would be embracing them and that, Lord, you would help assuage their fears. So, Lord, we pray that as we pursue you in this text this morning, that you will teach us very clearly how to increase our faith. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, allow me to introduce our passage this morning to you with a true story. Lisa's pastor in college had a son who as a teenager developed a debilitating illness that would eventually render him into a paraplegic. He was told on multiple occasions by well-meaning friends that they would pray for him and pray for his healing. One family friend told the son that if he had enough faith that his own prayers would heal him. Of course, he prayed for his restoration, but the Lord did not choose to do so. And he was left wondering how long he should continue to pray for his healing, that, that maybe his faith was just too weak in the moment, or he didn't have faith at all. Well, his godly parents gently led him through this process. 
They needed him to figure this out for himself, to arrive at an answer that he could be at peace with. And this young man even attended a faith healing revival service at a charismatic church, but of course that changed nothing. But through conversations with his parents and through reading the scriptures together, the young man came to a fresh thought. And he told his parents, he said, Mom, Dad, what if God wants me to be like this as a way to show others my dependence upon him? What if God caused my illness for his own glory? That this is the way that God created me and this is the way he wants me to be. And those thoughts began to galvanize his faith. No longer did he have the expectation for healing or that that God was somehow mistreating him or punishing him. But he was satisfied that God had him exactly where he wanted him to the praise of his name and his faithfulness. And I'm pleased to say that he's been using his circumstances to the glory of God to this very day. So let me ask you, Would you say that this young man's faith is weak because he no longer prays for personal healing? Or would you say that his faith is strong because his faith is in a God who is great enough to do something for his glory through a personal trial? I share this story with you because our text this morning has been used to justify this idea that that if your faith is strong enough, then you can do the miraculous, like heal yourself or heal others or remove yourself from financial difficulty. And I freely confess, if you were to lift verses 14 through 21 out of the overall book of Matthew, you might come to that conclusion. But this is why we must always remember when it comes to studying the Bible, we need to uphold the truth that context is king. Write that down if you will. Context is king. We should never just lift a single verse or passage out of the scriptures at proof text. In fact, in hermeneutic classes today, they, say, they tell you never read a verse. They emphasize a verse, meaning they want you to always read more than one verse and read it within its context. But rather, we need to see how the inspired author here used this passage in context within his overall work, and then we also need to place it within a biblical theology framework of what God is doing throughout all of redemption history. So I'll share with you a brief example of how this is done poorly. Growing up, it seems that every FCA meeting at my high school, I heard Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a good verse. It's great, short, memorable, and absolutely true. But the way that the verse was employed was to portray it as though athletes could accomplish whatever goals that we set before us. The emphasis was on the words, I can do. And it was even better that it said all things. Whatever I want to achieve is limitless. So let me ask you, can I, Blair Waddell, who can't even remember his own age at this particular moment, can can I do all things? Can I at my age score an NFL touchdown? Can I win a gold medal at track and field at the Olympics? I have yet to learn to play the piano as much as I have desired to do so. Of course, there's going to be one or two of you out there that's going to be snarky and say, well, as long as Christ strengthens you, you can. But that's not the point of the verse. It's in context. The the verse was not about obtaining personal goals, but enduring difficulties. 
Paul just got finished describing a period in his life when he was destitute, with no one to help supply his needs, literally starving. But he knew that he could persevere through such a trial for the sake of the gospel. Christ proved that he would strengthen Paul in the worst of his troubles. This verse was not used for personal goals, to to set a personal record or ace a test or to win a championship. It's not appropriate for that. But it is appropriate when you're being persecuted for your faith. It is appropriate when you're looking for a job and you're tempted to do something unethical. It is appropriate when you're going through a chronic illness or you're deeply grieving and you wonder if you can make it through the day. You can do all things in the strength of Christ, always in those circumstances. Context is king. This is why we believe so strongly at expositional preaching here at Providence. It's not because a pastor can't preach a a great and accurate topical sermon. Of course, someone could do that. But to preach verse by verse, line by line, allows us to stay within the boundaries of the original intention of the author to strive at the accurate and true meaning of the text. And we need to make sure that we put these eight verses within their context. Now, this story about the healing of the epileptic man is found in the other two synoptic gospels of Mark and Luke. All three accounts follow the transfiguration. In fact, Mark gives us the most detail about this healing episode. He devotes 16 verses to this story, double the amount here in Matthew. Matthew does not reveal everything to us. For example, while he mentions Jesus approaching a crowd here, he doesn't tell us that the other nine disciples were arguing with scribes at that moment. He doesn't tell us that it was the father of the boy that believed he was demon-depressed or that the boy was also mute due to the unclean spirit and that he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid in his seizures. Nor does Matthew tell us that, that the boy had been like this since childhood. Nor did Matthew share the conversation between Jesus and the Father about belief or unbelief. Matthew does not share the specific words that Jesus used to cast out the Spirit. Matthew only says that that Jesus rebuked it. If this was supposed to be some type of formula for an exorcism, surely the author would tell us that, right? Matthew doesn't tell us that the next conversation between Jesus and the disciples occurred within a house, nor that Jesus said to them to cast out such a demon required prayer. These seem like important details, and yet Matthew was silent on them. After all, he was there for this event. He would have been one of the nine, an eyewitness. Did he just forget? Well, I don't think so. Matthew told what he felt was important for the overall intention of his gospel. He was affirming the themes that he was communicating as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And one of those themes is the weak but growing faith of the disciples as the Lord Jesus was present with them. That's one of the themes here, the weak but growing faith of the disciples. That's what Matthew wants to emphasize. In many ways, he's telling on himself. Just as Peter failed to employ a proper faith to understand Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, and he missed the big picture at the transfiguration, Matthew is revealing that he and the other eight disciples had a weak faith also. So with the time we have remaining, let's walk through these seven verses in three different sections. Number one, a difficult case. Number two, an accurate diagnosis. And number three, encouragement for the future. 
Difficult case, accurate diagnosis, encouragement for the future. And we're going to leave just a little bit of time for some application as it relates to us in our present time. Jesus, Peter, James, and John just returned from their mountaintop experience and rejoined the disciples. The other nine have not been idle while they were away. It it appears they have been conducting their normal ministry when Jesus was not present. We saw this occurring back in Matthew chapter 10. In fact, it's worthwhile to turn back there with me if you would. This is found on page 814 of your pew Bible. I want you to be able to lay eyes on it yourself. Matthew chapter 10. This is what it says in verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now note this is specific. This extraordinary power was given only to the 12. And note the powers that they had to cast out demons and heal the sick. Now there were other followers with Jesus, but his authority was only for these 12 listed, not anyone else. So already we can see within our passage at Matthew 17 that this is specific to the 12. Not everyone has the power or the gift of healing. So anyone that tells you, well, you don't have enough faith to be healed is misappropriating Scripture because God doesn't give that ability to everyone to do that. Now back here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter into no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons." From here, Jesus sends his disciples out in pairs, and they minister in his name, but without him. And from what is occurring in chapter 17, the same type of ministry was occurring while Jesus was up on the mountain. The other nine are continuing their work. And while the Lord was away, this father brought his son to the disciples for his healing. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 17. The son is demon-oppressed. And I'm grateful for the details in Mark that help clarify that that this was a situation where the son was plagued by an unclean spirit. This was not just an epileptic where superstition attributed his condition to the demonic. Rather, the verse. Because he had a demon, he exhibited these signs. Now, let me pause just a moment because I don't want to be mistaken or misunderstood here. Now, I would say that all illnesses are related to living in a sin-sick environment, living in a fallen world. It's because sin has corrupted our bodies and the created world that we have sickness and deafness in our present time. So sin is the ultimate cause of cancer, of epilepsy, and COVID-19, just like it's the cause of hatred, racism, and crime. Sin is what ushered death into the world. We decay and we die because of sin. Now, not every illness or sickness has a direct correlation to sin. Some do. So, for example, use dirty drug needles and you might contract hepatitis. Don't stay disciplined in your eating habits and you might end up with type 2 diabetes or heart disease. But illnesses and decay come despite our best efforts to take care of ourselves because we are in a fallen world. 
But there is not always a direct cause and effect relationship between an individual sin and our sickness. And likewise, not all illnesses are related to supernatural activity like demons and the devil, but some are. We saw this when we studied Matthew chapter 9. Back there, in in that chapter, we had two men who were blind due to natural causes, and Jesus healed them. And then immediately after that story, it's followed by a man who was unable to speak. He was mute due to demonic activity, and Jesus healed him as well. Not all illnesses are related to demons, but on this occasion, this epilepsy and this dangerous behavior of the son are. The unclean spirit wants to harm the body of the man that it possesses. But as soon as Jesus approaches the crowd, we see how desperate this father is to see his son free. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus here. The Lord's disciples had failed. They couldn't free his son, so the father goes desperately to the master now. Now, if we were to to read Mark's account based upon Jesus' conversation with this man, we might wonder if the weak faith was attributed to the Father or to the disciples. In that gospel, the emphasis is on the Father's faith as he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. But clearly in Matthew's account, the emphasis is going to be on the disciples' little faith. Matthew is drawing attention to his own weak faith in that moment. This is not the first time that the disciples have failed a task here. In chapter 8, they were all in a boat with Jesus when a storm overcame them on the water. And they panicked, failing to remember that the one by whom and for whom all things were created was in the boat with them. And do you remember Jesus' rebuke in that moment? Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? In chapter 14, verses 16 through 21, they failed to feed the 5,000 when Jesus commanded them to feed the crowd. They didn't believe they could do it. Later in that chapter, they freaked out when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And boldly, Peter jumps out of the boat. And when he began to sink, what did Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. They get another chance when they're in Gentile territory to redeem themselves at feeding 4,000 in that chapter, in chapter 15. And of course, they had little faith to do so on that occasion. And just prior to this moment, Peter blew it when he tried to tell Jesus he would not allow him to go to the cross. Now, I could go on and describe other instances, but in the ones we just mentioned, the disciples should have known better. It's not that they didn't have faith. It's that they had weak faith. Their faith should have been stronger. And we see Jesus' response to this weak faith. It hurts him. It pains him. It causes an outburst of frustration. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. The word twisted can also be translated as perverse. The perfect son of God was grieved by the lack of faith around him. We have an emotional response of Jesus here. It reveals that it takes a great deal of patience on the part of Jesus to bear with a faithless generation. Now, maybe sometime in the future we'll have opportunity to explore the concept of faith just a bit more. But I find it interesting that what seems to distress Jesus the most is our weak faith. It's not that we make mistakes or that we have recurring sins, though the latter can be retributed to a lack of faith. It's that we're unable to rest 
and have complete confidence in his person and in his word. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now think about that for just a moment. What pleases Jesus most is our obedience by faith. This means when you sin, when you blow it, when you are at your worst, if you would please the Lord Jesus in such a moment, he wants you in those moments of weakness to come to him, to rest in him, to believe in his promises, and have confidence in his gospel. Not believe that he would push you away from him or believe that he would reject you. If you want to please Jesus, then approach him by faith and believe that he loves you and that he has paid for your sin. It is when we try to solve sin on our own, to seek our own cleverness and our own devices, that it's frustrating. If Jesus says it, he wants us to believe it. But the father's epileptic faith was wavering here, and the disciples' faith was weak, believing they couldn't cast out the demon, even though he had already told them that they could, that they had the ability to do so. Therefore, in his great mercy, Jesus takes care of the problem immediately, and he rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy. The text literally says, in that hour, which was an expression that meant immediately, instantly the boy was well. It's the same expression that Jesus used in chapter 9, verse 22, when he raised the synagogue elder's daughter from the dead. Now, I want to just take just a moment before we move into our third section to ponder the scene for a second. Because the gospel concerns people. Real, everyday, living, common, breathing people, not in the abstract. We need to consider this a moment. Now, picture yourself as this boy's father. You have seen his destructive behavior due to this demon for years, ever since an early age. He and his mother must have had a fear that they could never leave their son's side, that they couldn't turn their backs for a moment, lest the demon overwhelm the boy and force him into the lake or into a fire pit. He had to, to be watched all the time. And then he had to watch these fits as his son writhed on the ground and foamed at the mouth and became rigid. The fear this father must have had would have led him to think, will this be the episode? Will this be the one that he won't come out of? Will this be the, the one that the demon overtakes him and wins out? Think of the boy, ne never being able to control his own body, always enslaved by fear in this unclean spirit, never having a legitimate friendship with others, always inducing fear among other people. Surely wondering, will this fit be the time that the demon wins? And Jesus speaks, and it's over. No more demon. <laughs> no more fear. No more seizures. Freedom. If you were either character, what would be your reaction? How would you feel about Jesus? Would you, would you get on your knees and worship at that moment? Would you devote your life to serving him? Would you want to tell your friends about Jesus? We're not told their reaction. But maybe you can look back on your own experience. 
You have been freed from your oppression. You have been freed from your enslavement from sin and its consequences. The fear has been removed. Death can no longer hold sway over you because its sting has been removed. How has that changed you? Have you wanted to shout it from the rooftops and to go into the highways and byways and tell others about the healing of Jesus? If not, perhaps you've forgotten what he's done for you. And your faith has grown weak. In verse 19, we're told that the disciples are now with Jesus in a private moment. They, they wanted to know why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus' response is telling. It's not that they had misdiagnosed the problem. It was not the case that they thought this was a physical issue of epilepsy, and in actuality, it was a spiritually induced problem. Because they asked, why couldn't we cast it out? It wasn't that they were incapable of healing him or seeing the real problem behind the illness here. They knew what it was, and it wasn't that they had no faith. We've talked about this before. They had some faith, but, but Jesus tells them that in that moment they had little faith. He is speaking about the quality of their faith. They had weak faith, a a poor faith, an impoverished faith. It's not the size of their faith he's speaking about, but the poverty of it. Because even faith the size of a mustard seed can cause you to move mountains. Now, to say this, to, to use this phrase, removal of mountains, was a proverbial saying that meant overcoming difficulties. We heard an instance of it when we read our Old Testament reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be moved, says the Lord who has compassion on you. With quality faith in Jesus, nothing should be impossible for the disciples. Well, we might ask, well, why was their faith too little or too impoverished? Well, Mark chapter 9, verse 29, gives us a clue as a complimentary answer here. Jesus said this particular type of exorcism required prayer on their part. They must not have done this. Most likely, they went through the motions and said, demon, come out. And then when that didn't work, they gave up. We read in Matthew chapter 10 how Jesus gave them authority to cast out unclean spirits. Unlike us, they had the assurance that they could do this type of miracle. They should have still believed even when it was difficult. They should have gone immediately to God in prayer, but they gave up. Their faith was weak. In the next two verses, Jesus will challenge them again how important it will be for their faith to be strong as he goes to the cross. In fact, when you look there, verse 23, as soon as he gave them the news, what happened to them? They were distressed. It'll be crucial that their faith must grow. But we'll have to save those verses for another time. Surely now that we see that what this text doesn't mean, that our inability to heal ourselves or others is because we lack faith, that authority wasn't given to us in that fashion. But what does it say to us? What relevance does it have? Now, as I've personally contemplated this set of verses, let me just share my personal application with you. I've arrived at four for me. The first is the importance of a growing faith. The importance of a growing faith. If we want to experience the joyful Christian life, then we shouldn't just settle for having faith, 
but we must grow our faith. We must exercise our faith. James teaches us in chapter 1 of his letter, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Every experience that God puts before us is an opportunity to grow our faith, to choose to believe by obedience in him. But knowing what to place your faith in at any given moment requires our submission and our knowledge of the Bible. Paul states it well in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Over time, I've watched my own faith grow from from first obeying by faith in the small things, then seeing the fruit of that cause greater belief when the bigger challenges come. It's when hardships come into life that we discover the strength of our faith. Things like political strife, severe illness, persecution. Do we immediately panic in those moments or are our hearts drawn to seek solutions from the word of God in such a moment? It's important to grow our faith by exercising it. Second, and closely related to this, not everything is meant to be easy or solved in the immediate. We have a problem with this. Maybe it's in our fast food world that we live in. We want everything to be done just like that for us. Maybe we think the world is all about us, and that's our problem. Not all the works of God, including the miraculous, come instantaneously. The disciples obviously thought that casting out demons was an easy process. You say the words and it happens instantly. That had been their experience. But Jesus indicates there are some occasions in which we're called to persevere. And that gives me hope. Incredible hope. Some friends and family that I've been sharing the gospel with for years have yet to come to Christ. But the solution is not to give up, but to pray, to endure, to persevere. Perhaps you too have a relationship that's been broken and you think, well, it's never going to heal. Or a relative or a friend that's shutting themselves off from, from the healing of the scriptures and the body of Christ. Don't give up hope. Some races, some races must be won by endurance not by speed. I'm going to say that again. Some races must be won by endurance, not by speed. Third, consider that Jesus did not jettison his disciples when their faith was weak. All along in Matthew, ever since he first called them, he has been growing their faith. And instead of saying, boys, you blew it. He patiently desires them to learn to rest in him and in his word more and more. He is growing their faith in this process each day as they deny self, take up their crosses, and follow him. He's not done with me yet. He's not done with you yet. And last, consider the the love and the mercy of the Savior. This human father struggled with his faith, and yet Jesus still healed his son. The disciples gave up too quickly in their ministry, yet Jesus did not cast them aside and say, well, you're now disqualified. No, he welcomed them to place their faith in him once again. Perhaps you, poor sinner, you're thinking, Jesus won't take me in. 
The gulf is just too big. The sin is just too heinous. He will surely reject me. But he won't. He wants you to believe in what he did at the cross on your behalf, that he covered your sin, every single one of them, even the big ones, even the one you just committed right before you came into this room. He wants your faith to be in that alone and to trust in his promises. He wants you to place your faith in him. Brother or sister, perhaps your faith's been weak lately. Perhaps your depression feels so oppressive that you can barely get out of bed, and, or maybe you're just struggling with a besetting sin and you can't seem to shake it, and you're thinking, Jesus must just be so disappointed in me. He wanted me to do all these things in my own power, and I can't. You were correct. You cannot in your own power. But his desire is not that you pull away from him and keep your faith weak but that in your pain, in your darkness, in your sin, you come to him in belief that he can carry your burden. He invites you with the words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I don't want to rob anyone of hope here because I want you to know God can still heal. He can still, he's God. He can do whatever he desires to do. In fact, I heard a miraculous story last night from a friend as he was sharing with me about how God intervened and healed something for his daughter. But one final word. What if Jesus had not healed this man's son in this moment? Would that have made him any less God? What if this father had to endure years of suffering by watching his son in this affliction? Praise the Lord. He chose to end that suffering. But but let's say your call to trust and suffer is long-term in whatever situation you find yourself currently in. It's no different. God is asking and growing you to be strong in your faith. You will struggle all the more with, with a weak faith because he will be sovereign no matter what. But he will use your struggle He will use your suffering. He will use the very strain of your body to prove that he is sufficient and that he can carry you even though your faith is weak. He will show you that he is the only wise God. Let's pray. Lord, we put ourselves in the same situation with these disciples. We find ourselves constantly besetting, knowing that you have given us the promises and the truth of your word, and yet our faith becomes weak, and and we say, Lord, surely things are out of your control. Things are not happening according to your purposes. This hurts too bad. This pain is too great in this particular moment. So, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in such moments. We pray, Lord, that that you would lead us to understand that, that you do love us, that you do care for us, that you do cherish us, and that through that, Lord, we would have our faith and our hope and our confidence, knowing that even when you bring us through the trials, that your love is still secure for us, just as we read in Isaiah 54 this morning. We pray, Lord, that... You would allow us to remember 
particularly those who are pulling away right now. Those, Lord, who, who feel like they just don't have any way to continue and they want to give up. And, and maybe they're thinking in, them, in their own minds, my sin's too great. I keep doing it. I don't want to do it anymore. But yet it's just to help them, Lord, to know that you are a God great enough to overcome that. Help them to understand that you sent your son Jesus into the world to die for sin. Help them to understand, Lord, that when they stand before you, it will not be in their own righteousness, which cannot stand, but it will be faith in the righteousness of Jesus that they can stand before you. Oh, Lord, let it always be that our solid rock is found in Jesus Christ and our faith in him alone. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen.